Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Good Friday to you. First day of fall, but another day of Outkick the Culture here. I'm Jason Martin, your host at jmartoutkick on Twitter. You can email me jmartclone at gmail.com. Folks, this is my Michael Jordan flu game. I'm not sick, but I might as well be. Last week, of course, no podcast. Reason why? Last week sucked for me, actually, on a multitude of different levels, but not the least of which certainly was strep throat that attacked me. Kind of really started to hit me on Wednesday morning, but I was actually running a fever from Wednesday around 9 a.m. through Saturday night. And even Sunday at times, it would it would peak back over 99 a little bit, but I was running over 100 until Saturday, and that was just on top of a, just a pretty bogus week all the way around, which, you know, those kinds of things are going to happen. But obviously, with strep throat, I wasn't going to be able to talk, so there was no outkick to culture last week. And yesterday, and look, this is sort of self-injurious because it's almost going to come across like I'm boasting about this, and maybe I kind of am, but that's not really the intent. I had a ticket, went with a good friend of mine in the media, to St. Louis to see Sturgill Simpson perform at the Fox Theater. And here's how my day went yesterday. My Thursday morning, I did the Outkick show, did a little bit of after work uh, there. I wrote an article, and then around 9 o'clock, I took off for Kentucky, picked him up there, and then we drove to St. Louis, got to St. Louis at about 3 o'clock or so, had a meal, went to the arch, walked around a little bit, then we went to the show, which started at 8 o'clock. It ended just before 11. Immediately drove straight from St. Louis back to Kentucky. Dropped him off at about 3.15-ish a.m. Drove straight to Nashville, straight to the studios. Started going through your voicemails if you're an Outkick the Coverage radio fan. Getting those edited and ready. So what all that means generally is I'm on no sleep. I'm on... I've been up since around, I don't know, 3.45 a.m. on Thursday morning. It's now, I'm recording this, actually, you're going to hear this about just about after. I, this is how I generally do it, though. I do it after the Friday show most of the time. Sometimes I'll take part of it earlier. Sometimes maybe I'll do it a day before. But the Outkick show just finished for the week. It's like 8.05 here locally, 9.05 Eastern time. So I've been up uh, almost 28 hours now including 11 hours of driving time. So yeah, um, I'm, a, I'm a bit beat, a little bit tired, but a lot of cool things happened in and around the world of pop culture this week, so I did want to get back in here. I had thought maybe I would just come in and do it on Monday, but I wanted you to have it for the weekend. The Emmys happened. We're going to go through that just quickly. Not really going to go into it too deeply because, quite frankly, if you saw it, you saw it. If you didn't, you didn't. Who won the awards is not relevant to whether or not you like a series or not. Um, Obviously, I had my take on the leftovers and BoJack and some of these things that I believe were vastly overlooked and certainly ones that I think were vastly overrated, like the modern families of the world and things like that. But I told you in that diatribe 
that like hour long I just went off on the Emmys and dropped a bunch of F-bombs and got a little unprofessional with it. I told you what was going to happen. I told you that The Handmaid's Tale was going to win basically everything it was in position to win. Anything that it was nominated for, it was probably going to win. Or almost all of it, at least. And the reason why had less to do with the quality of the show than it did with the politics of the show and the way that television executives fawned over this show. I was in Austin at the ATX Television Festival back in June listening to five executives in charge of programming at their networks. NBC, Hulu, Showtime, HBO, and FX. I won't go through the names, but you would know them uh, if you're kind of deep into the television landscape. And there was a question asked as to what show some other network had that you were envious of. And the two shows, well, there were actually three shows that were mentioned, but two specifically were The Handmaid's Tale and Big Little Lies. The third was This Is Us. If you notice, the two big winners on Sunday night were The Handmaid's Tale and uh, Big Little Lies. This Is Us won for Sterling K. Brown, who's awesome in everything he does. He wins an Emmy in back-to-back years. He won last year for The People versus O.J. Simpson in a fantastic portrayal as Christopher Darden. This year, he's certainly the standout on This Is Us. There are other great performances on that show. Chrissy Metz is great, but the way they write her is not. And incidentally, and I announced this this week, I am going to be covering This Is Us weekly, my newest relationship, and I want to thank NBC Universal for adding me to the list basically so now i'm getting to see a lot of their stuff in advance they were one of the few that they weren't holdouts i just hadn't really we had had a little bit of dialogue and hadn't really gone anywhere maybe i hadn't followed up the way i should have but finally i did and so now i'm going to have access to their stuff that's why i posted a good place review the day of the premiere but before it actually aired this week we'll talk about that a little bit later on and i'm going to be covering this is us weekly and reviewing that beginning this coming week as the season, the second season begins. And I've already told you, I feel like we could be seeing Empire version two with This Is Us. Not talking about the content, talking about the quality. At the end of season one of Empire, I, and there were a couple of other people I saw, said almost the same thing. I said, I'm pretty sure we've seen the best of Empire. That was a really good one season, but I have a feeling it's going to go off a cliff. And it pretty much did. It still rates well, but in terms of the story and the logic and what you would want from a series of that ilk. It has been a shell of itself since the first season. No fault of the acting at all. Just, I feel like there was one season of story in Empire, and now we're just kind of going further and further off the deep end, and it's probably never going to stop. This is us. We got a pretty, we got a solid season with a bad finale, so that's not a good sign. Everybody's back, and there's, NBC is pinning so many hopes on this show because it is their hit. It was a bona fide smash, the first network drama in a long time not produced by Shonda Rhimes or some kind of procedural on CBS that has actually been able to make waves. You know, there were some other minor successes last year. Lethal Weapon was expected to do nothing and, in fact, was actually pretty success- successful. And it was also actually pretty good. And it's going to be in a new time slot this year, which is something CBS, or pardon me, Fox does relentlessly which often proves to be a mistake, quite frankly. But in general, the one-hour dramas, are their audiences are already set. Your Chicago Fire, your Chicago PD, your 
all of those kind of shows, or NCIS is like I mentioned, the procedurals on CBS. This is us with something entirely different. It wasn't a Shonda Rhimes, Grey's Anatomy that's been on for 40 years, or How to Get Away with Murder, or Scandal. And of course, Shonda now signing a deal with Netflix, so a lot of her future projects are going to be there. Uh, and we're finally going to get to the end of a couple of those shows that are currently on ABC that are going to remain there until their runs end. Plus, there's a spinoff of Grey's Anatomy that is also going to be on ABC as well. But This Is Us was a hit. So anything that becomes a hit for one of the big four, what used to be known as the big four, I don't think you call them big four anymore, that means something. The fact that This Is Us actually gained traction it wasn't necessarily just good for NBC. It was good for network television, but it was also just, man, that show must be really good if it's able to actually penetrate this market at this point in time. So it won, but it didn't win much. It was nominated. You know, Chrissy Metz was nominated again. I just don't like the way her character is written. Has nothing to do with her performance. She's great, but it's basically like the only story that they want to tell about Chrissy Metz is that she is overweight and that that's it. And that, to me robs what that character could potentially be and hopefully we'll see different things this year obviously the weight is going to be an issue and should be an issue but it shouldn't be the only crutch the only thing that the writers have to say about that character so let's quickly go down the emmy list uh outstanding drama went to the handmaid's tale i told you that that's how that was going to go down the television executives on stage i i mentioned this in an earlier podcast episode i believe it was uh yeah, it was uh, Nick Grad of FX that asked the uh, person in charge of programming for Hulu whether or not he was going to submit The Handmaid's Tale into the drama or the documentary category. And everybody had a good laugh because, all oh, The Handmaid's Tale is, is so close to happening in America. No, it isn't. And you read all these quotes about how relevant Margaret Atwood's book was then and how relevant impression it is today. I'm here to tell you it's not. Handmaid's Tale is a very good show, in my opinion. It's one of the more difficult watches that you'll ever have. It's a fantastic performance by Elizabeth Moss, who finally, after nine nominations, wins an Emmy. She was nominated over and over for Peggy Olsen and Mad Men, but never able to actually win in those categories. It was different people at different times, Robin Wright and House of Cards and there were varying performances that got honored over her, but Peggy should have won many times over. And that goes for a lot of the actors on Mad Men that were either overlooked or nominated and did not win. So Moss winning, it was more, I mean, look, the offer performance was great, but I kind of took this as more, finally, Elizabeth Moss wins something because she deserves it. And she did uh, for lead actress in a drama. Lead actor, as I told you, Sterling K. Brown and This Is Us. I've got no problem with that, although... That was a strong category, but Sterling K. Brown was definitely the star to me of that show. Milo was nominated as well, but Sterling was, his stuff was the stuff I was the most intrigued by overall. Outstanding limited series, Big Little Lies, and anything Big Little Lies was up for that it could win, it won most of them. And the reason why, and I told you this, is that the Emmys are star bleepers. And when you got Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon and those kind of names and Shailene Woodley and that stuff's going to win. And it did. It won all night long. Risa Med won for the night of, even though that series kind of 
fell off after a really solid start and ended up not being anywhere near as good, in my opinion, as the British series that it was adapted from that you could still watch called Criminal Justice. Riz Ahmed was great throughout as Nas. So he absolutely, I believe, deserved to win. Even though I, you know, I liked some of the other people in that category. Torturo was good in the night of, obviously, but Ewan McGregor, I really enjoyed in Fargo, for example. But I think they got this one right. Outstanding comedy went to Veep, beat Atlanta, which did win other awards during the night. Donald Glover won a couple, and he also had the best suit of the night. I want that thing for myself. Atlanta, Master of None, were also in the category, obviously, Blackish. Modern Family, Silicon Valley, Unbreakable, Kimmy Schmidt. All those shows are pretty good. Modern Family shouldn't be nominated. They could have put another ABC show if they wanted to put one in there, whether it's Fresh Off the Boat or Speechless. But Veep wins it, and you can't ever be mad at anything Veep wins, even though I believed that I wanted Atlanta to win everything it was up for because I believed it was the finest comedy of the year. However, per capita, I've said it over and over on this podcast, no show has ever had the quantity and the quality of joke just rat-a-tat-tat style as Veep ever in the history of comedy. So you're never going to be too upset about that. Julia Louis-Dreyfus wins again next year. She might not, but she probably will. Pamela Adlon in Better Things Season 2 came back last week. I've seen the first seven episodes of the new season. And folks, Better Things is outstanding. Pamela Adlon is remarkably good. She was really good in season one, got a nomination, but season two she should win, quite frankly. Just what I've seen already, I don't think that there's a better performance that's going to come in the comedy uh, category before that point. Now, Veep is going into its last year. Julia, if she wins, obviously her performance is going to be good, so nobody's going to be upset at anything Julia Louis-Dreyfus wins. But I'm hoping that they spread the wealth around a little bit and go with Pam Adlon. But I think it's possible she'll win again, meaning JLD, on her way out for Veep, which will be historic. Donald Glover, like I mentioned, lead actor in a comedy. I'm fine with that. Beat Ansari, beat Jeffrey Tambor, beat Anthony Anderson. But truthfully, Donald Glover, extremely good. John Oliver wins again, no surprise. SNL won a lot for politics. Kate McKinnon won for playing Hillary. Alec Baldwin won for playing Trump. Melissa McCarthy won for playing Sean Spicer. SNL won variety category again, uh, which it doesn't always, as a matter of fact. But it played well in the room, and Sean Spicer showed up, and that was whatever it was at the beginning. Uh, San Junipero, Black Mirror, Charlie Brooker's directed episode of Black Mirror, which you can find on Netflix. I think you should watch it because it was definitely one of the two or three best episodes of anything done all year. It's kind of a miniature movie in effect, but it's wildly different than any other th- anything else I've ever seen on Black Mirror, either the original series or the additions that Netflix has made. And of course, we're coming across a new season here shortly, but it's well worth the price of admission to watch San Junipero just a unique take on what Black Mirror could be when it doesn't fall into its own traps, which it can do from time to time. Aziz Ansari and Lena Waithe win uh, writing for a comedy series for the Thanksgiving episode of Master and Nun, which was fabulous. And Dowd gave a great speech. 
uh, after winning for The Handmaid's Tale. Did not win for The Leftovers, but I'll hand her that anyway. And I'm still mad Carrie Coon. You know, Carrie Coon didn't win for Fargo because, well, she was in a Big Little Lies category. But if Carrie had won, I would have just assumed it went to Nora as much as it went to Gloria. And I'd have been okay with that. But Big Little Lies just kept on winning, kept on winning. Handmaid's Tale kept on winning, kept on winning. Laura Dern also won for Big Little Lies. I was mentioning those big names. They just kept coming. John Lithgow won for The Crown. John Lithgow was great in The Crown, and The Crown might actually be the most complete Netflix drama available. With all due respect to those of you who love House of Cards, which at this point I'm not sure why, Orange is a New Black, which has not been the same for a couple of years now, and you know any others that you might want to mention. The Crown was rock solid. It might not be as approachable to some, but it was awesome, and John Lithgow was always good. So there you go. We'll see what the Emmys have in store next year. Don't really want to go any further on it because it's an award show, and I'm not just going to read a list to you for an hour. This is not what I expected to start talking about this early in this podcast, but I have to. American Vandal hit one week ago today on Netflix, eight episodes they're around a half hour. Most of them are about 32 minutes, and then the finale is 42 minutes. I didn't know what this was going to be. Like, I knew I had read the synopsis on the Media Center website. You know, I had seen the releases, but I, I had no idea whether or not this was going to be any good. Even as I started it, I wondered if, am I wasting my time here? I hadn't seen any reviews from my colleagues. It was one that I actually did not request to get early. I'm not even sure that it was one that they were giving out early. Some of them, they're not. In fact, Mindhunters, which I thought they were going to be uh, giving us a chance to get in advance, they're not. They're actually So we're all going to be watching that one together when it hits on the 13th of October. But American Vandal is a fictional satire of true crime documentaries. It takes elements from Serial, from Making a Murderer, from The Jinx, from all your favorite true crime shows, from all your favorite true crime podcasts, and it spins them around a story about some prank that got out of hand in a California high school where 28 cars were spray-painted with penises. Those cars belonged to the faculty. The damage went over $100,000, and basically a rush to judgment, guilty until proven innocent, is a burnout Johnny Knoxville, Steve-O kind of clone named Dylan Maxwell. Dylan Maxwell, not popular, plays pranks, farts on babies, does things with nuns and tr- like puts a nun costume on and humps a tree, those kinds of things. He's a wannabe jackass in that respect. Doesn't take school seriously. Looks like he could be the culprit. And he's the one that is expelled for this crime and he's going to face having to go to court. He is on the hook for, you know, six figures worth of damage. If you see his house and you see kind of the life that he lives, clearly his family does not have that kind of money. And early, it's a lot of dick jokes, quite frankly. There's a lot of humor, especially early on in the series, as they're sort of introducing what they're doing. And I think that even if it had stuck there, I would have found it pretty funny and fairly entertaining. But what I did not fully expect was how deep and dramatic American Vandal would become. 
This show made me care more about Dylan Maxwell and the various cast of characters than just about anything I've seen this year, especially from a new show. I was so impressed by the end of this thing with the way it was laid out because it balanced humor and drama in a way that was just remarkable. I cared about Dylan, and around midway through, I realized, no, this guy didn't do it. And I wanted to see him get off. I mean, I knew this thing was fiction, but I was more invested in his story and finding out the answer to the question that they ask over and over and over again in American Vandal, quote, who drew the dicks, unquote, that I was basically obsessed with getting to the end of this thing. Like, you want to talk about a binge, this, ladies and gentlemen, is a perfect binge watch. It's not too long. But it's not too short. It tells one story that you care about from beginning to end, and it evolves it and takes it in different directions to keep you interested. You've got the eyewitness whose credibility is called into question. You've got a teacher that seems to have had it out for Dylan and his older brother before him who makes claims that the school takes at face value. But then you find out some things about her as well. There are other instructors that find themselves caught in the maelstrom. And then, of course, there are the key to any good true crime series, generally, is alternative theories of the crime and alternative suspects. People we can look at, point fingers at, and say, that right there creates reasonable doubt because he might have done it. You know what? Duke could be innocent because she might have done it. And, you know, at the end of Serial... I came to the realization that as much as I wanted to believe that Adnan Syed had not killed Hay, I came to the same conclusion that Sarah Koenig did, which is, if not him, then who? There was no other plausible suspect put forth. There was not enough other evidence for me to do it. So I'm thinking about it, and I don't know. Look, the the defense attorney certainly did not do a good job if you actually listen to the series. I don't think that he was defended well at all. So in that respect, I think he should be out. But if that if what we got from Serial is just about all that was available in the case to try and make the case for Adnan Syed's innocence, I probably would have voted him guilty. Same thing with Stephen Avery and making a murder. I'm sure he's guilty. Not so sure about the other person charged in that crime, but definitely Stephen Avery. That was a very, very biased piece of filmmaking. And I don't think that they necessarily were even trying to hide it. But if you'll notice, they again did almost no service to Stephen Avery when it came to finding somebody else that could have done this. But if you go through the annals of Dateline and 48 Hours and 2020 and whatever shows you're watching on Investigation Discovery, it's all about who could have done it. And then the way they lay their shows out is that they will omit someone in early interviews, and that's how you can tell who it is that's going to be either in jail doing an interview later or a day before the verdict is read or whoever it is, you you, you kind of realize where it's headed. And of course, you can always point to the husband or the wife or sometimes the son or whatever it might be. But they usually lay out four or five people that could have done it first because they're laying out a story. 
they have all the facts, but they want you to stay around for one and sometimes two hours to listen to them tell this entire thing. American Vandal gives us nine suspects, all that work on the morning show, the morning television show at this high school, including the guy who's doing the documentary, Peter Maldonado, and his best friend, Sam Eklund. They're played by Tyler Alvarez, who you may remember from Orange is the New Black. You may not, quite frankly, because most of the people in this series you will have either never laid eyes on or you will say, think I know who that is, but I'm not sure. Griffin Gluck plays Sam Eklund. I didn't recognize almost anybody in the show. But Peter Maldonado plays the Payne Lindsay role, plays the Sarah Koenig role. Sam Eklund is his friend, or you, you would think like Koenig's producer uh, for WBEZ Chicago, if you wanted to kind of look at it from that perspective. He's Andrew Jarecki from the, the Jinx is Maldonado. And so they're trying to get to the truth. Dylan at times asks if they're actually helping him get off on the crime. And they say they're not doing that. They're just trying to find out what happened and they're documenting it. And in the process of trying to document the crime and to figure out who did it, because I think that they do come quickly to the realization they don't believe that Dylan did it either. They expose secrets all through the high school. Professors, one or <laughs> professors, teachers, one and one that loses his job because he opens his mouth on camera and says some things that you can't say. Classmates and hookup lists. Did a hand job happen? Did a hand job not happen? All of these kinds of things get exposed. People cheating on each other, drugs, all this stuff gets kind of caught up as part of this larger investigation. And there's a moment towards the end of the series where one character that's kind of been, like, she was associated with it, but not to the level in which they kind of exposed her story. And she finally just asks, like, why was that necessary? What did that have to do with what happened in the parking lot? And if you go back and you think about your favorite true crime series, wonder about all of the other people that are mentioned in these shows with either scant evidence or partial evidence in order to fill an episode with drama or entry. I would suggest you Up and Vanished is a really good example of one that did that. I liked it early on, and then as it continued to go, all of a sudden names were mentioned, but there wasn't a whole lot of factual evidence to back up why they were being mentioned. But of course, as soon as you mention someone's name, there is a contingent of people that will then always think that person's guilty. That's the problem with calling somebody a racist or a child molester or Peyton Manning's on steroids or whatever like that. The reason why that's harmful is because 25% of the people that hear Peyton Manning's on steroids, even if it's from somewhere like Al Jazeera, are always just going to think that. There's some people that don't like Peyton Manning that are going to want to believe it. But there are also people that just believe everything they hear, and then you can't talk them out of it. So all these names are getting mentioned, and all the things that they may or may not have done that had nothing to do with the dicks in the parking lot changed their lives. You also see Maldonado and Eklund both, Maldonado in particular, become celebrities. The same way, how many times have I mentioned Sarah Koenig in this discussion? I just mentioned Payne Lindsay. All these people become stars in their own right because these shows take on a life of their own. This series, the American Vandal series, which is the name of the fictional series within the series as well that's being uploaded on YouTube, 
becomes big time to the fact that at one point the principal bans it and suspends both Sam and Peter from school. And basically the students and teachers and community mutiny and get him back in to continue his work. There's some unseemliness to the true crime genre because where is the line between trying to get to the truth and wanting to either make money, make friends, or become a superstar? When you listen to some of these shows, you can see people that really do like the limelight. I'm going to mention Payne Lindsay again, and not necessarily in a negative light here, but Up and Vanished is now doing live shows, like in front of audiences. They're touring around. I'm not necessarily sure what the content of those shows are. I'm sure there are Q&As involved and things like that. It's not like episodes necessarily. But we're on tour because of a show that's trying to uncover what happened to a Georgia beauty queen named Tara Grinstead. I wonder if at all Payne or anybody associated with Up and Vanished has ever stopped to think about the optics of them touring as if they're Beck or Wilco. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I am saying you probably got to own it at some point that you are enjoying what's come. And you've, you know, you're asking for donations so you can do another season and another crime because you want this to keep going because it's become big and good for you. But American Vandal creates heroes and villains, and it also shifts what hero and villain actually means. Dylan Maxwell becomes a celebrity near the end of the show. And then he finally sits down and he watches the documentary. And he sees what his classmates said about him at the beginning, how he was perceived, how he had been typecast in their eyes, stereotyped, what they believed about him. And he fell into huge depression, saw they all think I'm a loser. They think I'm a burnout. They think I'm an idiot. They think I'm good for nothing but drawing penises on a blackboard, you know, things like that. And how many people immediately assumed he was guilty off the top. When you watch the first episode and Peter is interviewing various classmates, they all say Dylan Maxwell did it. Not because there's evidence of it, but because of his past and what they believe about him to be true. American Vandal's brilliance comes not just from the balance of the humor and drama, but also in the way that it exposes teenage life in modern society. The bullies, the jocks, the preps, the cheerleaders, the homecoming queens, the dorks, all of it. And how mean it can be, and how superficial it can be, and how painful it can be. Dylan Maxwell ends up being one of the more sympathetic characters we've seen in 2017 on television or on the big screen. You care about this kid. You will wonder as you're working towards the end whether or not you're going to actually find out what happened. While it does not come out directly and answer the question, it indirectly basically does answer the question. And when it comes to a close, you feel like that story has been told. 
now the creators and the writers, the people that are associated with this, Dan Peralt, Tony Yacinda, Dan Lagon, they are thinking about what a second season could look like, focusing on some entirely different kind of crime. All I can tell you is I will be front row center to see whatever they've got next because American Vandal is the most pleasant surprise I have experienced in entertainment in 2017. It was fun and funny, at times really funny, at times really not funny, dramatic, sobering, and even depressing. But it is so well executed. It nails the nuances of these true crime shows from the gestures that are made by Maldonado and Eklund when they discover something small or when they think something might be possible to their eureka moments. The reactions to this young cast of characters that you don't know very well and the few adults that are around and the the acting is really solid and if you read anything about American Vandal they decided not to stunt cast and instead went for young people that could improvise I don't know how much of American Vandal was improvised I know that some of it was to be sure and if you look at the credits of some of the people associated with the show in front of the camera they are people that could play this off in improvisory fashion but the key to take away here is if you like true crime shows, if you're addicted to them, podcasts, television, whatever it is, you owe it to yourself to watch American Vandal. If you like good television, you owe it to yourself to watch American Vandal. If you like good comedy, you owe it to yourself to like American or to watch American Vandal. All of these things exist for all of us within this show. This show blew me away. Because I didn't come in with many expectations. I had no idea what to expect. I assumed I would laugh some and probably think a lot of it was dumb. I came away laughing a lot and thinking virtually none of it was dumb. It started out good and then evolved into a true treasure on Netflix. So I'm happy. Nothing makes me happier than to be able to come on this podcast and rave about something that I think a lot of you probably have either overlooked or not seen. This is a primary example. American Vandal is fantastic. You should watch it. I actually may go back and watch it again just to now that I know, you know, how it ends and where it's going, I can kind of pay attention to some of the smaller things that are going on that maybe I missed while I was busy trying to figure out who actually drew the dicks. And I did care and I had my theories. In a fictional show. That's how good American Vandal is. Kudos to everyone involved with that. Unique. Timed out perfectly because of the rise of true crime. And the success of the real versions of these kinds of documentaries. But just pitch perfect in execution. Fantastic show. Another fantastic show came back on a Wednesday night on NBC. It's going to move to its Thursday time slot after the one-hour premiere that aired here a couple of days ago. It's The Good Place. It's hard for me to talk about The Good Place without spoiling the big reveal. So I'm going to go ahead and do it. My review at Outkick.com, which you can still read, obviously. You can read anything I've ever written at Outkick if you look through the archive or just search. I did not spoil anything in the print review. So I'll just go ahead and tell you, 
I want you to watch The Good Place. Season one's on Netflix. I think they're actually going to be uploading season two, like almost instantaneously after the fact as well. But if not, it's definitely on Hulu. I want you to watch it, and I really don't want to spoil this for you. But I'm going to talk about it because I want to discuss the episode a little bit. I've seen the first four episodes of the season, including, well, the two being the one hour this week, and I've seen the next two weeks. And I'm so just thrilled about the new twist that this show has taken that I can't tell you about. But I I have to discuss the one that has already happened. So I'm just going to tell you, I'm about to talk Good Place with spoilers. So if you have not seen it, please just skip a couple of minutes so that I don't ruin this for you. So I'm going to go silent for about three seconds and then get into this. Talk to you in a few. So The Good Place comes back. After the greatest swerve of 2016 in television, when we find out that the good place that Eleanor Shellstrop and Tahani and Chidi and our buddy Jason Mendoza have been living in through the entire season, this version of heaven that skirts around religion pretty much entirely, not a blasphemous show. This good place, Eleanor finally realizes as they're trying to decide who is going to go to the bad place, who are the two people that are going to sacrifice their eternities for everyone else. When she realizes in the midst of an argument in the good place that in fact there's no train coming to take them anywhere. Because they're already all in the bad place. And then you see Ted Danson's Michael laugh maniacally and say, you ruined it. This was going to be so much fun. And he admits to being pure evil, an architect that basically designed a torture, uh, designed a paradise to torture. People that thought they were in a good place, but indeed were being manipulated in the bad place. Just a... I never saw it coming. I know some people did, but I know not many did, and certainly not many of my colleagues in the critical world did either. Because after we all watched it, I had a couple of conversations with a few of them, and we were just blown away. This was so inventive. We had seen a version of Heaven that seemed very imperfect because Eleanor Shellstrop, the reason why we didn't necessarily jump to that conclusion originally is because Eleanor Shellstrop was there by mistake. We knew she was there by mistake, and we found out that her being there is kind of the poop in the ice cream, if you want to use a John Calipari analogy. That analogy, by the way, is that he tells, he tells players, or he did in the past, don't be the poop in my ice cream. By that, he means that ice cream, if you put just... A, a molecule of feces in that ice cream, it's ruined. Just a molecule. And then you could take a spoon and then take that molecule back out. But if you knew that, who was eating it? No one. Then on the other side, you could add a football field worth of ice cream to a toilet bowl, and it would make no difference. It would just ruin all the ice cream again. 
don't be the poop in my ice cream. Eleanor thought she was the poop in the ice cream. That's why she came clean. And another thing I didn't expect from The Good Place was to reveal that secret early in season one. How many shows have we seen that keep these things live for years and years and seasons and seasons and keep characters that we want to see either in bed together or married or certainly in relationships together apart for years so that they can fill episodes? Good Place, like five episodes in, she stands up in front of the entire community and says it's a sham. She was there by mistake. She got mixed up with another Eleanor Shellstrop, and she wasn't supposed to be there. I was stunned. But nothing prepared me for the reveal that what we've been watching the entire time was indeed hell and not heaven. Non-religious, again. So then when you get that, and then at the end of the episode, Michael just resets everything, and we see Eleanor's eyes open just like they did in the very first moment of the pilot episode, and she wakes up again in the same room, and they're just going to redo this. Michael's going to get it right this time. Everything that we just watched means nothing because he's in charge as the architect and as this, you know, ancient demon, whatever. And so now they're going to, she's going to have to find a way to piece it together again. Or is she? So I had a lot of questions. How are they going to do season two? Well, what we saw is the first thing, and this is the only thing I can tell you because I can't tell you what I really want to tell you because you have to see it for yourself in a couple of weeks, but believe me, it's brilliant. If you like the stuff you saw this week, this coming week's episode is utterly hilarious. Like you will laugh your ass off during the next episode. And then the one, the following week is where we get the new twist and it's epic. But what what you have seen, if you've seen the premiere, is what this show looks like when we know all sides. Now, we're still seeing these people in a world in which they don't know why they're there. They don't understand that they're in the bad place, all of that. But now we actually see Ted Danson behind Kristen Bell, like manipulating things. And we see the other residents of this town who are all working on behalf of the bad place to make these four or five people's lives miserable, we see them all conniving, manipulating, trying to torture these people, and it's really effective in that respect. So now it's so much more fun because you've now you're seeing two different sides of the equation, but you're completely in the know and they're about to drop another bomb here in a couple of weeks and it's just great michael sure is doing awesome work the good place my review it's not very long but you can read it at outkick.com the other stuff i wrote this week by the way the deuce uh episode two we'll talk about episode two and three next week we'll let a little bit more go through instead of just talking about one hour this week but another great episode of the deuce which got renewed by the way this week for a second season no surprise there Deuce is going to win a lot of Emmys. Going to get a whole lot of nominations. Remember I told you about Starfuckers at the Emmy committee? Yeah, well, consider James Franco and Maggie Gyllenhaal and those kind of folks being associated with the Deuce. This is going to be the one that gets David Simon the love that he's never really gotten from that particular award show, despite the love he gets from critics all the time. But I wrote about the Deuce. I wrote about Bobby Heenan. I really would like for you to read that. If you would, I've gotten a lot of very nice comments and emails and people seem to really enjoy it. Um, certainly very personal to me because it explains why you're listening to me right now. And I write 
that story for you. Different than the story I told you in the first episode of this podcast 11 or 12 weeks ago when I laid out kind of how I got to where I am. But without Bobby Heenan, none of that would have happened. And I lay that case out for you in pretty good detail in that article. So if you have a chance, I'd love for you to read that and give me your thoughts. Good place review I just mentioned. And then the American Vandal Review, which came out on Thursday. Today's actually the only day this week that I'm not writing something. Remember, next week, this is us. I'm going to be reviewing that um, with the premiere. And that uh, I'm thinking that screener might be available now. I hope so. If not, I'll watch it with you guys and write about it the next day. Deuce season or Deuce episode three review. Something coming out of No Mercy, whether it's the Brock Braun match or the Roman Cena match. I'll have some kind of wrestling commentary for you next week at Outkick as well. Also, probably a review of Battle of the Sexes, which I saw a few days ago with Emma Stone and Steve Carell and the Billie Jean King Bobby Riggs story. I am mixed on it because I think it's being advertised as something it's not. And I think that the audience that comes in expecting what they see in the commercials is going to be a little bit miffed when they see what they actually get from the product. Talked a lot about American Vandal, talked about the Emmys, talked about The Good Place. I wanted to do more, but honestly, I'm beat. I am. My throat is still honestly not 100%. Like, this was, this was rough. I used to get strep every year around my birthday or around Easter. But... I have not gotten it this bad in a while. And again, I had a fever and it was coming on top of just a really just bad week personally for me where some other things had gone awry kind of out of the blue. And so I'm going to cut it here as opposed to droning on and on and losing uh, some of my focus and all that kind of stuff. I need a nap, quite frankly. But truth be told, I've given you what you need to see this week. I also wanted to talk about Atypical, which I really enjoyed and I will save that, and we'll do it next week. Atypical is another good one to binge this weekend uh, on Netflix if you get tired of the football. Good Place Season one's available for you there. American Vandals, eight episodes are there for you. Uh, Atypical's eight episodes are there for you. That's another half-hour show, another well-done show. Again, we'll get into detail about that next week. I really want you to watch American Vandal. I think I've made that clear as we talked a lot about that. I know we haven't talked enough about BoJack Season 4. We'll do that. I'm going to save the Rick and Morty season discussion for the end of the year. There have been some outstanding episodes over the last five or six weeks. That show is unreal in more ways than one. So we will certainly discuss that. I also wanted to talk about the center, but here's the thing. Because of my Thursday and Friday, Wednesday I tried to go to bed early. It didn't necessarily work, but I have not seen the finale of the center yet. So I can't talk about it. I also had somebody email me about suits. And you know what? I will talk about suits here for just a couple of minutes. Suits is a show that I greatly enjoy, but it's a show that has pretty much run its course. It's going to be the same every season. That's why they put Mike in jail when they did, so that we could see that storyline because it was something different than the same skyscrapers and courtrooms. We know these characters. We know what they're going to do. There is one... Actually, you know what? There are two things that are left to do on Suits before they exit stage left. Maybe three. One is for Mike and Rachel to get married. With Robert Zane's blessing and who knows where it'll be. Maybe it will actually be in Harvey's apartment. Who knows? Maybe they do it in a small ceremony somewhere. It will happen. 
The second thing, and this is the one I'm not sure necessarily has to happen, but it might, is Lewis Litt's full redemption where he actually meets the right woman. And maybe he's already met her and he gets back with her. Hint, hint. Who knows? But the biggest thing that's that's actually out there is the thing that happened at the end of this summer finale, which is Donna and Harvey finally getting together. That's the entire point of the show. Like, other than the Mike Harvey relationship and some of the other little things that are going on, the story that everyone has kind of sat back and remember I told you about how The Good Place gave its secret to you like four episodes in. Suits has held Donna and Harvey for six or seven years. They've put other people in both their lives in romantic capacities to delay this, to put obstacles in the way, to keep it from happening yet. But it's the one thing the fans are not going to accept if it does not happen. Which means our therapist is going to have her heart broken pretty soon. I don't know whether or not they're going to immediately jump to the kiss meaning something when they come back in the fall, but it will be discussed. And maybe Harvey will say, I never knew that you felt this way, but I'm with somebody else. And eventually he'll end up with her because he's going to end up with her. There's no way Suits is not going to end it that way. Uh, So those are the things that are left for that show to do. But quite frankly, we're spinning our wheels because the story has been told. We kind of know what's happening here. Nice to bring Dulé Hill in. I enjoyed his character and the way that they told that story. Gina Torres kind of moving off, but she, but the Jessica Pearson character has enough clout that it's important whenever it shows up and she can just kind of cut in and out and do big things and then disappear again. I think Wendell Pierce is fabulous as uh, Rachel's father. He's good in everything. Treme, The Wire, you know Wendell Pierce is fantastic. I still really like Suits, but I've gotten to the point now where I just enjoy watching these people than I do the writing. The writing has become stale, and it's become very one-note. So those are the things that are left for the show to accomplish. How many seasons it's going to take to get there, I would suggest we've probably got one more. I think they're probably about ready to, to, to get through this. They got through the 100th episode this year. It's a lot of episodes for a USA original. It's been pretty... Look, the quality was still there. It wasn't a slog to get through these episodes, but this all feels like filler. You know, you have filler episodes in the middle of a season between the big moments. All of this feels like filler because the big moments are the ones I told you and they're the ones that haven't happened. There were like two or three big things that happened in this entire half season of Suits before they take their break, before they come back in the winter like they usually do or in January. But I don't know why Suits needs to exist anymore other than I like hanging out at... uh, the firm with Harvey and Mike and the crew. I like all these people. I like watching them. I like watching them act. I enjoy watching them interact. I get the feeling they really enjoy being together. I saw the table read back at ATX in June. They were all down there. Seemed like a great group of people that enjoy what they do. But this show's done, folks. It still rates well, but I mean, eventually you just cut the cord for the sake of the quality. You don't want to go on too long. When we went to prison, I kind of felt like we were already doing that. But since they went that route with Mike getting caught and having to make amends as opposed to Mike actually not doing that until the end of the show, it made sense within that construct. Now, the only things that are left are the couple of romantic entanglements that are almost done but not quite done, and then where these people are going to end up professionally. 
and we'll see exactly how that plays out. But I did want to touch on suits. Maybe we'll talk more about it next week again. My voice is starting to go. Like I said, my throat, I'm still trying to kind of get myself back into the swing of things. So I'm going to go ahead and cut it a little bit shorter than maybe usual. But again, American Vandal, please watch it. Good place. I'm begging you to give that a shot. And if I spoiled it for you, hopefully if I spoiled it for you, it made you more interested in seeing it just to see that all play out. Also, one other thing. I tweeted this out a couple of days ago. You can find it at Uproxx as well as, I think, Entertainment Weekly. The cast outside of Dancing and Kristen Bell were not told about that finale twist off the start. They didn't find out until much later in the season for the sake of, not really for spoilers, but genuine performances and things like that. But Kristen Bell films their reaction, the four other main parties, including Darcy Carden. They're sitting across the table, and you hear Michael Schur lay out the twist, and then you get to watch their reactions. It's awesome. It's so cool to see these these actors realize, holy cow, we are amidst something really awesome here. Like they are, they're almost like school kids. They're so excited when they finally find out what's going to happen at the end of that season, which we already know. So it's even better. You hear Michael Schur lay it out, and you already know. And then you can just kind of watch. I've watched it five times because I watch one person each time, and then I watch the entire group and just kind of try to dart my eyes around. But it's it's great positivity, folks. Like it was cool to see these people laughing and doing all this stuff. Everybody is down each other's throat. Everybody is criticizing everybody else. Everybody is trying to step on other people for whatever gains that they need to make. Positivity needs to be brought back. And what I've done over the last 50 minutes or so is give you some positivity about some shows that I really like. And then I did say some, you know, I've still got to be objective when it comes to suits. But I, it's it's interesting because that's not what I came in here to do. I was just going to talk about the week, and of course we talked some about the Emmys too. But I gave you two shows that I'm just over the moon excited exist, and I want you to share that with me this week. American Vandal and The Good Place. And if you get done with those, or if you've already watched both of them, check out Atypical. I think you'll enjoy that one as well. You will also enjoy Outkick the Culture next week as we will talk about The Center once I've actually gotten to see the finale. And talk a little bit more about Leah Remini's Scientology show as it's taken a break for a few weeks. But boy, the last three episodes have been stellar. So all of that, plus two episodes of The Deuce that we'll be able to get through. Had some questions about Vice Principals. We'll discuss that as well. So just a ton, a ton, and the Battle of the Sexes review, Battle of the Sexes review, uh, as I said. So just an immense amount. Also, probably Kingsman. Kingsman... They didn't screen Kingsman, at least not here in Nashville. No critic that I know actually saw it. I was a big fan of the first film, so I'm really looking forward to seeing the second one. I probably this would be one I would go see on day one. I would go see it today. Uh, but I'm gonna be seeing the back of my eyelids. It's been twenty nine hours now and counting since I've had any rest, including eleven and a half or twelve hours or whatever it is of driving. So I'm beat, folks. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did and you're somebody out there that would like to sponsor this program, at Jmart Outkick, you can DM me. They're wide open. Jmartclone at gmail.com. If you want to email me there for correspondence or anything else, you can get me there, whether or not you're trying to spend money on this show or what. If you're a musician, still need music for the show, I've got a couple of people out there that I actually need to contact back, one from a band that's pretty amazing that they would potentially be associated with this show. 
But uh, I guess it shows the power of OutKick and maybe the power of J-Mart OutKick. But this has been OutKick the Culture. Hope you dug it. We will talk to you next week. I'm going to bed. See ya. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.